Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. If you are a guy who is dating, engaged, or married, I just want to let you know that Valentine's Day is tomorrow. So um, uh, if you want to go to a good restaurant, it's too late. White Castle is your only option. Although I've heard they have a pretty good Valentine's special. I don't know. I haven't been. So, Um, Well, hey, welcome. My name is Trey Gilmore. I get to be the pastor here, and uh, just thankful that you've joined us in this nice, slow stroll through Matthew. We are uh, just taking our time going through every verse, and it's just been great. Um, We are at this point now where uh, the passage today, I'm going to get right into it. I don't have a catchy intro because I want to get into it because there's a lot to cover. Um, Because this passage has a lot of weight, I think, in our own lives. And Allison just read it, but um, I want to jump right in because I want to pose a question that I think all of us are kind of going to ask ourselves when we read this. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 12. Starting in verse 38. If you don't have one, we have some in the back. You can steal those, and you can keep that if you'd like. First verse, I just want to jump right in. It says, Then some of the experts in the law, along with some Pharisees, answered him, Teacher, we want a sign from you. Now, if you remember the last few weeks, we've been talking about this kind of tension between uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, all these guys who know the Bible really well, and Jesus, who's kind of cutting against the grain that they had created. And uh, that's why we're in part um, four of Matthew, and we called it the opinions of the king. And it's basically just tons of different opinions on who Jesus is. And in this last few uh, weeks, we've seen the Pharisees clearly don't like him. And they've done a lot of things to already attempt, you know, they want to assassinate him. They've already tried to kind of catch him in his words in front of a bunch of people publicly. And we're at this point now where this opening verse in this passage is just, hey, we want to see a sign from you. And it's interesting because I was thinking about this and... We have the, whenever we read the Bible, especially the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, we, we try to identify with some of the characters, right? And so you have Jesus, and you have his disciples, and then you have the, these Pharisees and these like religious leaders who are very far off. And most times when you read, you probably don't think, like, man, I'm a lot like the Pharisees. I'm a lot like the scribes. I'm a lot like the religious leaders. Because you're like, I don't have the Bible memorized, and I didn't grow up like, you know, like they did. You probably identify more with the disciples or like the common people who Jesus heals or saves or... Um, Or maybe you identify with Jesus, maybe you think you're pretty great, Um, but most of the time we don't. Uh, We want to be like him, but we're not like, that's me in this story, I'm the guy who did it right, right? (laughs) But in this instance, I actually think we're going to resonate a lot more with the Pharisees, and the reason why is, is because, I don't know about you, but I think the world desperately wants to see signs from God. I think that's been the case since literally the Bible was written, and even in the Old Testament. Uh, So I want to do a little thing, close your eyes, if you will, close your eyes, no peeking, Okay, raise your hand if you've ever kind of just cried out to God, like, show me a sign that you're real. Raise your hand. Okay, now open your eyes and look around. You are in good company, right? Or we're all just really wanting to experience the Lord, which is hopefully a good thing. Uh, Now, at the end of the day, we've all done it. We probably can, some of us continually do it. Some of us right now are praying that prayer, right, at night. Like, Lord, I'm in this season. I don't get it. I'm frustrated. I need a sign. I need something, right? Maybe you've done the cliche, like, if you just write on the wall, or you just send a lightning bolt right now, or whatever, or you just, 
You know, you kind of give them these like ultimatums a little bit. Like, if you show yourself in this way, you know, if you like, and we do that, right? And we've all, I think, all been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that. There's been seasons of our life too where we've been more in that camp where we're like, yeah, God was super real to me a few years ago, but now my life is just, you know, I've moved on and I kind of need another one. Or I, or I forgot the weight of that sign, right? Even when people come up here and they tell their stories and like a lot of times we have these kind of radical um, transformation moments and conversion and, and then some people are like, yeah, and I've had a lot of really, really cool God moments since then. Or some people are like, yeah, I'm kind of in this desert and I just, I'm just trusting that what I experienced was real, that it mattered, that I believe in the truth. And so the Pharisees here, their heart is probably a little different than a lot of us in asking for a sign. But at the end of the day, I don't think God is surprised when humans want to know he's real and experience his power. Like, I just think that's, like, if you walked down the street today and you asked anyone, like, hey, if God would reveal himself to you, would you, would you want that? I think anybody, even an atheist or an agnostic, would say, absolutely, let's do it, you know? And so then what happens is, we, we, like, get excited about that idea, but then we get discouraged when it doesn't happen. We say, well, I don't understand, like, I, I want a sign if God really loved me, wouldn't he, like, why would he hide himself from me? We, the Bible, the, the God of the Bible doesn't appear to do that. Like, he appears to be very present in people's lives. He brought Jesus to be man among us. Then he, when Jesus ascended to heaven, he brought the spirit among us in our hearts to dwell in us. Like, clearly there's an intimacy there that God is not trying to hide from us. And he's not just this old guy with a beard up in the clouds, right, just like, you know, like looking down on us like little ants, right? So when, I, when you read this passage and you see, teacher, we want a sign from you, I, I, I think we resonate more with, with that than we realize. Now, the difference between probably you and the Pharisees is some of you might be testing God so you can prove that he's not real, right? Some of you might be maliciously attacking God, but most of us genuinely just want to experience God. We, wanna, we want to see God reveal himself in our hardship. We want to see God reveal himself... Uh, against our intellectual doubts, right? We've read too many science books, you know, or whatever, right? And you're like, you're trying to reconcile all this or whatever it may be, right? Maybe you just love reading Nietzsche and you're, and you're starting to become a nihilist like him, right? But at the end of the day, I think we all are guilty of wanting this. In fact, I had this experience where um, last year Sarah and I went on a vacation to Cancun and we were at this resort. And it was funny because like when I go on vacation, especially to the beach, I just want to like not talk to anyone. I just want to like read books and sit in the sand. That is any good food. That's like that's my like priorities, okay? And we get there and we're like excited because it's like a couples resort. It's all inclusive and it's it's actually the smallest of this resort chain that we went to. And so there's only like 200 like people there. Like there's a small resort and I'm excited because I'm like I'm gonna go to swim in a pool and not have to talk to anyone. Day one, I kid you not, we end up making like eight friends, and four of them were from Columbus, who live like two miles down the road, right? And so I'm just like, okay, God, like, I guess ministry never stops, right? Like, <laughs> and, and the, of course, I, like, wait a few days to tell them what I, my job was. So, that, like, that, you know, I wanted friends, right? When they find out I'm a pastor, <laughs> they're like, hey, I'm so sorry. Two days ago I said this word. I'm really sorry. And I'm like, okay, yeah, it doesn't matter what I think, really. It doesn't. Um, but anyways, so we make these great friends. And to be honest, like, they became, like, our favorite thing. We'd, like, all hang out. We'd go to the pool together. We'd, we'd eat. We even started eating dinner together at, like, restaurants and um, we met this couple that we still keep in touch with today that are great. They live in New England, and uh, they're both essentially agnostic, um, which is a pretty common trend in the New England area, if you've ever been in that area. Um, but they were, like, the sweetest people. And so they loved getting a dialogue with me as a pastor and Sarah about God and about belief and all these type of things. And we were sitting down this one evening after dinner, 
Um, and we were just starting to talk about it. It was a really great conversation. It was probably a couple hours. And he started to ask me a bunch of these questions. And a lot of them, he was an engineer, very metaphysical, very like, like what is the soul? And he, he started asking me some of these questions. He says, because we were talking about, he says, tell me about your experience with Jesus. Like, how do you know that he's real in your life? And we started talking about that. And so he says, when you, when you mean to talk about Jesus, like, what do you mean? Does, does he talk back? Is it just your brain impulses responding to your own internal thoughts subconsciously, right? Like, we know neuroplasticity is like a real thing in our brains. If you felt God's presence, did you just feel warm or more like a sensationalist experience? You felt God because of your environment or maybe your emotional engagement, right? Like when your lights are dim and the music's loud and whatever. Uh, any, 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 uh, he said, so if God, if God told you to do something, how do you know it was actually God? Like then he starts talking about discernment, right? People use discernment and God's calling me to do this or telling me to do this. He says, how was it not just a feeling or desire that you subconsciously wanted and was placed at the front of your thoughts to think it was a divine being? And then, he, and, uh, then I did a bad thing, and I mentioned my soul, which is a bad idea. And he says, what's your soul? How do we even know that's real? Is, is, is Jesus actually in your heart soul? Or is it just a belief in your brain that emotes into your understanding of feeling, like your gut, right? How do you continue a relationship with Jesus if you aren't hearing from him each time you talk? Do you just make stuff up? Do you follow the Bible in between the times when he manifests his presence or his voice? Now, I know you're thinking, what a vacation, Trey, right? <laughs> you're, like, you're like, that sounds like my living hell right there. Like, going on vacation, it's like the good place when you think you're in the good place and you're really not. Uh, and you're like, what is going on? It was a great conversation. It was really, uh, it was the rare moment where I think two people, myself and him included, had a really great dialogue that was not aggression, aggressive or, um, so it was fun. But, um, so I, I left that feeling encouraged, even though it was a little tiring. But those are some good <laughs> questions, right? Like, like, you probably have some of those questions, right? I would think so. If you care, you would, right? Like, and, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, like, he, he really nailed down this aspect that, that was really just like, this is so foreign to the physical reality of the world that I know. You know, like, even when um, we, we do discipleship in churches, we talk about, hey, you need to pray. Some people are like, what, what is prayer? Like, what, how do I pray, you know? It, people don't even know what it means to pray, to open up themselves to hear from the Lord. And you're like, well, what does that mean, hear from the Lord? Like, do I need to make a sacrifice? Is he going to speak from the heavens? Is it in my head? What is it? Is it people around me? We don't, like, we don't talk about those things because they're not this, like, little ball. It's just tangible. You can just, like, here it is. Look at it, right? It has this... This other kind of dimension, there's this tension in the world we live in. And, and you know, a couple thousand years ago, around when, when the Israelites and even first century Jew, like, there wasn't a problem with this because it was just the way that they experienced the world, right? Science was still, I mean, it wasn't like it is now, but it was still valid, but everything was just a dance together. It was not so compartmentalized as it is now, where we live our lives so just, like, on one track that we have a hard time reconciling the tension. That's more of a Western mindset. The Eastern mindset of the world has a much easier job of that. In fact, even like when we tell stories, we're like, and part A, and part B. And like, you want three points in my sermon, you're just not going to get it, you know? But they just talk in circles. So it's like this narrative they're creating, and then you kind of find the middle, and that's how you understand the story. Well, we're like, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Like, write chapters and build on the story. They're like, now nah, we're just going to like circle it until we kind of, you can feel it, you know? And so I just think, like, we are wired to have these struggles. And I think about it. Then I started thinking about I was, like, praying over this. And I'm like, yeah, no, this is, like, frustrating. Like, you read Matthew 7, which we just talked about a few months ago. And it literally says, 
when you pray to your Father, when you ask God, if you ask him for what? Anybody remember? A, a loaf of bread or a fish? He's not going to give you something completely different. He's not going to give you a stone. He's not going to give you a snake. What kind of, what, and he says, what kind of earthly father would even do that, right? It's like, like asking for Christmas, like the new action figure, and he gets you a rock, and you're like, Dad, do you love me, right? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what Dad, it'd be better just not get anything. Be like, hey, I got you this rock. Like, just don't get him anything, right? And we pray, and we're like, God, give me a sign. We feel like, give me this loaf of bread. And sometimes it feels like God is literally giving us a rock or nothing at all which could be worse or better, depending if you like rocks. So there's this tension that we feel when we read passages like this, and I, I want to make you uncomfortable in sitting in the tension because uh, I don't have an easy explainable answer. I don't think you actually really want one, because even if I did, you'd be like, really, it's that simple? Because it's not that simple. But as we read this passage, I want you to just let that sit uh, as we talk about this next few verses in this entire passage, because that is going to be the question is, at the end of the day, we're going to ask ourselves, right, like, what is, what is this tension that I'm feeling? What do I do about it? And maybe you're not, like, feeling it a lot right now. Maybe you're just like, me and God are walking hand in hand. Things are great, right? But maybe you're like, nope, I am in the desert. I would love a drop of water, and I am not getting it, and I'm very frustrated or burnout or so busy or whatever. Like, I was, I was reading a, a book where this guy was talking about how this, this person left their faith, and they just listened to, like, two podcasts, and they, like, left the faith. And I was just thinking about that, and I was praying about that, and I was like, some of you in this room, I think, are one podcast or one book potentially away from losing your faith. And I'm not saying that to shame you. You're probably not alone. Like, I, I know you're not alone, because I get to talk to some of you throughout the week. But, like, just knowing that, this tension is real for our community of people. Like, even inside the walls of the church, people are experiencing this. And we're one podcast or book away from just abandoning it all. And so I, at, the, at the end of the day, when I like, think about this, I was thinking about internally my own self, I started to ask myself some of these questions. I just kind of want to probe this tension a little bit deeper. Uh, would I, believe, I asked myself, would I believe in a God who doesn't reveal himself on a whim for me? And even if he did reveal himself on a whim for me, would I care to see it? Or have it even, would it even change my current life and what my affections are wired for? Meaning, if God really did do something in my life, would it actually change the tra trajectory of my life? Like, truly, I might say it, but would it really? Would it, would it change everything? And then I started thinking about, well, if, if God could just put a, pill of, a pillar of fire outside my window, then I'd believe. I'm making a joke, because there's a story in the Bible where the Israelites follow a literal pillar of fire in the dark to know where they're going. And they're like, I wonder if God's still with us. And there's this <laughs> giant pillar of fire in the air. It's ridiculous. Well, maybe if God would just multiply the food in my pantry. Maybe you're college student. You're like, I'm running out of ramen. If I could just get another, like, 100 packs... And then I'm like, wait, there's a story in the Bible where Jesus feeds 15,000 people. And he does it again with different people. Like, okay, all right. Well, maybe if God would just part the seas in front of me. You know that one, Israelites also. Maybe if God would just make it rain food, bread, then I would know there's the Lord. Although if you're gluten intolerant, you might not be that happy. But, <laughs> but maybe God would rain gluten-free bread. I feel like he would do that. He would do that. What if God would just heal this person of cancer? What if he would bring back to life my friend or my family member? What if he would cast out this demon? If you uh, remember, there's a guy by the name of Judas who sees all of those things happen. And what does he do? Betrays Jesus and walks away. So these things that we think we need, I'm not saying that you don't need it, and I'm not saying that you don't really want it, but if you look at the narrative of the Bible, God has done some pretty crazy things to reveal himself. 
And I don't know about you, but if you read continually, it doesn't always turn out very well. In fact, most of the time, it doesn't turn out very well. Or it lasts for a few days, for a few weeks. I mean, my gosh, the manna, the bread that was falling from the sky, they didn't even trust God on the Sabbath day when they had to gather double because on the next day they weren't going to work. They didn't believe that he would actually, you know, honor them the day after. Like on Monday, there's going to be no bread, so let's stockpile. Like, it just rained bread every day. And you're like, I don't know if he's going to do it tomorrow, guys. It was, it was an off chance. Who knows, you know? It was just a weird storm. And, and I mean, we are, we are prone to, to doubting like that. We have the ability so quickly. So, so in the next like, 15, 20 minutes in this passage, what, what is Jesus saying and doing in relation to this tension that I'm feeling? That's the question that I want you to wrestle with as we talk about this. Verse 38, we want a sign from you, teacher. Now remember, the, the Pharisees here, we, let's give them a little bit of grace, okay? Asking for a sign was not un- uncommon. In fact, Moses, you guys remember, like, the Israelites are like, show us a sign, show us that God is here, right? And he does some different things, and God, I mean, look at Moses, even with Pharaoh, he does all these different signs and wonders, and at first the sorcerers can replicate them, and eventually they're like, oh, this is above our pay grade, we can't do it, God is really real, he's real, he's doing something. Well, so it wasn't uncommon. In fact, there's a story of a guy named Gideon, who I just love. Gideon is like the coolest story. There should be a movie about Gideon, like a good movie, like good budget movie, you know? Because it's, like, you know what I'm saying? Don't, don't, if it's not going to be a good budget, don't do it, right? It'll ruin it. But in Judges 6, Judges is a great read, uh, Gideon, after all these evil enemies are crossing the territory of, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, ter- their territory, and they are going to attack Gideon and his people, the Lord's Spirit took control of Gideon. He blew a trumpet, summoning the uh, Abyssalites to follow him, and he sent messengers all throughout the region, summoned all these people, right? Then Gideon says to God, if you really intend to use me, to deliver Israel as you promised, then give me a sign as proof. So then he does this weird thing where he's like, look, I'm putting a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and on the ground around it is dry, then I will be sure that you will use me to deliver Israel as you promised. Pretty creative, right? Pretty creative sign. You're like, Lord, I'm going to throw this patio furniture out in the front yard. And if I come back the next morning and it's wet but the ground is dry, I will know that you <laughs> are sending me and these soldiers out to go kill these guys. Like, very interesting. Okay, so what, do we, what happens? Uh, the Lord did as he asked. When he got up the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and even drew, uh, dew, sorry, dripped from it to fill a bowl. Wow, God is so real. But wait, a few verses later, Gideon said to God, please do not get angry at me when I ask for just one more sign. <laughs> Let's flip it. That way we know it's real. This time, I'm going, to put the, I'm going to put it down, and this time make only the fleece dry when the ground around it is covered in dew. So not the fleece, the, the ground, and then I'll know for sure. And so that night, God did as he asked. Only the fleece was dry, and the ground around it was covered in dew. What is, what is going on in the Bible? Seriously. And then, oh, just, but wait, okay. Then, then they, 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 like, you know, they, they have 22,000 men. And they're ready to go fight. And God's like, yeah, it's too many. And he's like, wait, well, that's not how the war works. You want more men. He's like, no, no, no. Send back the guys that just got married. Let them enjoy their marriage. Send these guys who don't really want to fight. So he whittles it down from 22,000 to 300. Okay? Now, I know there's a movie, 300. And I know you th- it, what's crazy about it is those guys did some wrecking. That, that's similar. I mean, 300 guys against thousands. 300 guys. And surely at this point, you know, Gideon had already gotten two signs. He's like, okay, well, God's really with me. Uh, but now there's only 300 guys. Like, I don't know, again, if this is real, right? Like, which is funny, because the beginning is, all I need is one sign. Well, all I need is two. Well, now that I see my army, I might need one more, okay? So, that night, the Lord said to Gideon, this is funny, it's like the Lord knew. 
He says, get up and attack the camp with 300, for I am handing it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and listen to what they are saying. Then you will be brave and attack the camp. So, so Gideon gets his, his third chance you know, to like, I don't need a sign. I trust you. These 300 men will do it. And God kind of gives him this out, which is really interesting. But he gives him this out of like, hey, if you don't, if you're still nervous, go down here. And he goes down to this camp, and, and they basically kind of prophetically said they were going to win. And he's like, all right, we're going to do it. And then they go do it. And what do they do? They win, of course, right? Come on. Great story. But three times, basically. Three times, Gideon doubted. He asked for a sign. It seems as though God just easily gives him it, right? Like, it does. And you read these passages, and you're like, okay, well, what, what is my Gideon experience? Like, I have this sign I want. Why is God not revealing it to me? And what I want to get at here is I, I don't want you to think, like, oh, it's a sin to want to experience God's presence and reality and glory in your life. But is it possible that it can be sinful to idolize the things of God more than God himself? Is it possible to idolize the performance of a worship song instead of the root and the heart behind glorifying God? Is it possible to overemphasize the teaching, the sermon, the message over the weight of God just speaking in your own life? I think there's a lot of things that are like, I mean, that are God's creation that... that that show and boast the glory of the creator, but we just, we don't care about the creator. And so God, I don't think is mad at you at your heart to experience and be in deep union with him. He's not like, ugh, stop asking, right? He's not like annoyed. But, but at the end of the day, okay, well, Trey, if he's not annoyed, then why isn't he, do, he, why isn't he showing himself to me? My heart, I feel like it's purely wanting him. It's purely wanting to experience him. And so let's get into this passage and let's see what Jesus has to say. The Pharisees, I think, have a different heart. Their agenda is obviously to trick him. Um, they had just, if we remember last week, blasphemed against the Spirit, which is unforgivable in that they are so far against God, they are calling what is good, evil. They're not even calling what's good, not so good, or maybe okay. They're calling a clear, you know, casting out of a demon, demonic. And Jesus is like, oh boy, that's not going to play. That's a foul. That's like, that's like targeting in football. Like you're out of the game. There's no, you're just done, right? We're going to take you out. Like, you're done. And that's essentially what happened. He's like, this has gone too far. And, and he, he, he kind of reams them for blaspheming, and then they obviously, they start to kind of come back with more tension. And what's interesting is they have seen plenty of signs. We're, we're in Matthew 12. I mean, I know it's not always chronological in Matthew, but we've seen a lot of things. Jesus has done a lot of things, right? At this point, he's really done anything we could think of. So them asking for a sign just seems like, are you kidding me? A sign? Like, what have I been doing the last few months? Are you, like, you've been here. You've seen it. You just saw... A little bit ago, I healed a guy in front of you, casted out a demon, and you're asking for another sign. And so Jesus replies, and we can understand his, their intention by what, how he replies. He says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, Jesus' priority here is not to ask for a sign, but the heart and attitude of it. We, we, this sounds obvious, but maybe I need to keep hammering it. Jesus cares a lot more about your heart than the external. The external matters, but you can fake external without your internal, but internal always leads to an external, meaning like, same with words. We talked about words, the power of your words. Your words are always indicative of your heart. You can fake it during an interview. You can fake it for a few hours on a date, but after a while, when you're married, you're going to see their heart, whether you like it or not. And in the same way, his priority here is not, not the sign itself, but the heart and attitude behind it. And so he's bringing out Jonah, which is, uh, which is just great, you know, you're like, oh, are we going to go into Jonah now? If you don't remember Jonah, there's a great, um, the, the best movie on it is VeggieTales. It does a great job. <laughs> if you ever want to know, watch Jonah. I mean, I still, every time I read it, I think of the asparagus. 
I don't think of a man, Jonah. Because he just does such a good job. Uh, I think it's actually a bad thing. I don't know. I can't get it out of my head when I read it. But anyways, in, th in this moment, you have Jonah. And he's, he's quoting, you know, Jonah. Because Jonah is this beautiful story of redemption. And Jonah is fascinating because Jonah is this prophet. Yeah, and, uh, and he is called to go to Nineveh, right? He goes off to Tarshish instead at first. He's going off to the land of opportunity and excitement. He doesn't want to go to this podunk town and be a pastor there. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And so instead, he, he, you know, God brings him a storm. They throw him off the boat. He gets swallowed by a large fish, whale, who knows, fish for three days. Uh, there's a gospel choir in there in, in Jonah, and they sing this song, and it's really great. And, and he, find, he has this prayer that's in the center of the book. The prayer is directly in the middle of the book. It's as if there's this... Here's the first half. There's this redemption in the second half. Um, but what's interesting is even when Jonah goes and does that, goes to Nineveh, we have no assumption that they would have been like, oh, this guy was swallowed by a fish. I want to hear everything he has to say. They are saved by words alone. Like his, his message, his prophetic message, is what causes the city of Nineveh, which is just the worst Las Vegas you can think of, to repent. And what's wild here, one scholar just put it, because they write like, you know, with big words and, they're nerdy sometimes. Uh, our friend R.T. France, who's been taking us through Matthew the last several months, he says it was his prophetic message, not his marine experience, which led to their repentance. I love I'm like, marine experience, yeah. He, he paid extra for the dolphin ride. Um, and he's in, the, he's in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus says in verse 40, for just as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days, three nights. Here we go, Jesus is already alluding to his death, burial, and resurrection. But, but the thing is, the, the ugly mission that Jonah reveals himself into is, is without experience. It's without this sign. Like, Jonah does not go in there and start multiplying bread. He, he could have maybe told them about the fish, but there's, nobody's like, I saw it. It was crazy, you know? It was their ability to see their own lives, to turn away from them in humility and follow and believe in Jonah's message. Now, what I think is really cool for us is a lot of times we feel like the Bible is unapproachable for us just because of 2,000 years later. But, like, we are, in some ways, having the same faith. Like, we are following, and the book of Acts kind of has this, we're following, uh, Paul would say, the man who do we not see but we follow, we believe in. Not that Jesus is not real, but, like, I haven't seen Jesus in bodily form physically in front of me. I didn't see him crucified and then raised again, right? None of us have, I don't think. Unless you have a time machine you're not telling me about. And so we believe in the words, the Bible, the words uh, made about the flesh, about Jesus. Like, in some ways, we are like Nineveh, where um, we, we, our, our faith is built upon just the following of the, of the truth, of the message. And what's so interesting about that is, is that, okay, like, so let me think about this. So all, every Christian in the world right now, like, I, I think our hearts want to see God more and more as we follow him. And, and, but, like, we follow based on the truth and the word of his, of his, of his message, of the gospel, of the good news that we believe in the weight and the power of that as a massive piece of our following Jesus. And so Jesus is almost saying here, hey, uh, look, at the, look at this town in Nineveh. They believed and they repented of their own pride and, humil or own pride and selfishness for, in a state of humility. And, they, they, count, you know, and, and they, they listened to the message and they accepted it without any signs, without any miracles. And those were Gentiles. Those were not Jews. Those were not people who knew the understanding of God being with them. Those were completely way off people. And so I just want to ask this question. What if our internal problem with God is not giving us, is not giving us signs, is less about our need to actually 
see something, meaning it's less about us needing to see something and more actually about the state of our heart. What if the people of Nineveh, it was more about the state of their heart, that they are so far off, they recognize their brokenness, their sin, they recognize their trajectory that is far off, the things of God, and they fully repent and turn from it. In fact, you see they, 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 they get in sackcloth and ashes, they mourn, they fast. Like They are like, we have screwed up greatly. So what if our sign, it's less about the sign, it's more about is our heart actually receptive if God was to reveal himself, right? Like if our heart is so far off, are we actually able to see the things in front of us in the ways that he decides to reveal himself? Clearly the Pharisees know, right? Like they see a man in front of them, demon-possessed, blind, mute, all of it's gone, and they're like, yeah, that was demons. And you're like, that's not how that works. Jesus gives them logic to explain that. Is our heart so far off internally that we, we really can't even fathom a sign that would actually move our hearts. So Jesus talks about Nineveh, which are pagans, Gentiles, and even they repented from Jonah. Now we, now we bring up the, king of the, the queen of the south, which is your next uh, verse 42. So I'll read 41 and 42. The people of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented when Jonah preached to them. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater than Jonah and what's funny is he's saying the people of Nineveh would condemn the people hearing Jesus right now and not believing. Why? Because the people of Nineveh didn't get to see any signs. And the Israelites are seeing Jesus do things left and right and still being like, I don't know, is he our guy? I'm not sure. He's like, they would condemn you. They'd be like, are you guys kidding me? We didn't get to see anything. And we turned from our ways. And then he brings in the queen of the south in verse 32. Some of your translations might say Sheba, which is just like another name. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and now something greater than Solomon is here. He's like, even the people far off from the land of Israel have come searching for freedom in God, in Yahweh, and even they would condemn you because they, their hearts were more like wanting to, to cling towards the experience of the Lord and, and follow the Lord. And even they would be like, guys, he's right in front of you. What are you doing? And then what Jesus does is he says twice, there's something greater here than even them. Jesus' message is far greater than the prophets, than even Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, who was actually a son of David, who people had thought, well, maybe he's in the lineage, son of David, like he could have been, a bit, you know, he's a big, Solomon was like the richest man ever, wisest man, right? Even him, even greater than him. And he's, he's drawing them in, he's like, look, the things that you really think you want and you need, like your heart is so far off. And he's calling the Pharisees exactly at their game. And he's, he's like, your heart is not capable right now. Like, it is so turned off to what I'm doing. I'm not just going to play for you. Like, I'm not going to play a fiddle, right? Like, I'm not going to play your game. And he says this in the next passage. And they're actually tied together. Your Bible's probably split them up with a sub, uh, subtitle. But uh, in verse 43, he uses this example. When a clean spirit goes out of a person... It passes through waterless places looking for rest, but does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the home I left. When it, when it returns, it finds the house empty, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live in there, so the state of that person is worse than the first. It will be that way for this evil generation as well. So, Jesus is kind of further explaining what he means by this. He uses Nineveh and Jonah. He uses the Queen of the South and Solomon. He's like, here are people, here's case studies of people who are trying 
to experience, to understand, to follow the Lord. And I am among you and within you and have done all of these signs, and you still are not capable of repenting. Imagine the evil oppression on those people that that is the state they are in, right? But like I said, imagine that, but then you think about in your life, like how much evil, how much oppression is in our life? How much are we surrounded by? How much are our habits, our lives, the way we spend our time and money and all? How much is that just, just, just clinging to us? And so what he says is, look, a clean heart, he talks to use this illustration of spirits. It's less about like demons. It's more about just the story. Is when you, when you cast out a demon, what Jesus does, right? He casts out demons. He heals people, right? Great. You have a, you have a clean slate, right? But if you don't fill that with, with, with the, the, the belief, the, the life, discipleship of Jesus, you will end up being far worse off than before. And he's saying, I am giving you the most tangible experiences of myself. I am cleaning up your house, and you are doing nothing with it. And what's going to happen when you do nothing with it? Seven more spirits will come in and tear it up and make it even worse because nothing is dwelling in there. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, you don't get to just half repent. You don't get to just see my signs and want them and be okay. Like, that's not, that is not going to sustain you. And for those of you who have experienced God in powerful ways, you know that to be true. What you experienced five years ago, ten years ago, a month ago, will not sustain the relationship with Jesus. And that's why we see Judas, who has seen everything, right? Seen every, talk about his prerequisite list. You'd be like, oh, what have you experienced? Well, let me tell you. Like, have you read any of the Gospels? I was there, Right? There is, this, there is the tension that you're feeling, I think, as I may so be bold to say, is you're idolizing the signs of God over God himself. And I'm saying that because the devil is, is using our inability to trust with the tension of what we must think we see in the world. When we've, we have an entire hundreds and hundreds of pages in the Bible of people thinking that exact same thing, and it turning into rebellion, it turning into building a golden calf within a few days and worshiping an entirely another God. And I just, I think that what would our lives be like if we started to follow Jesus? Not blindly like we don't care, like we don't read, like we don't, you know what I'm saying? Like it's not just like, oh, I don't, I don't want to read anything because I don't want to be proved wrong. I'm just going to blindly follow. But that understanding that what we see is just the smallest sliver of the reality that God is in and among. And that the things that we want, which are good probably most times, right? Like we want to see people here. We want to see freedom from people. We want to see sin put in its place, right? At the end of the day, though, you're still not the one who does that. That's still on God's time and God's terms. And the more that we fight what God is doing, the more disgruntled we become with him and the more Satan uses those lies to feed a distance from him. And so the tension that you're feeling, the tension that I've felt at times, right? The tension that we feel... The tension that I had with that guy who I had a conversation with, a friend, is, is, is so real in our lives. But at the end of the day, like I said, it is not just about us clinging to these things. It's about clinging to the Savior himself. And what that means tangibly and what Jesus is saying is, like, I can show you anything you want and you still will not believe. That's basically what he's saying. I have done anything that you can think of. What do you want me to do? You want me to, you want me to flip this building upside down like Superman, right? Like, at this point... I've done so much, and you're still not going to believe. It doesn't matter. And I just, I think about that. If we internalize that, like our hearts get to that point where like, God, you have to reveal yourself to me or I'm not going to believe. And I think Jesus has been clear about what his ministry and mission is and how he's made it tangible in, in our lives and in these people's lives. And, and so in simple terms, the signs that we want, I think, 
are only a small piece of what will truly protect, guide, and minister to our souls. Our faith must be more and stronger than just our desire for a sign. I'm not saying that signs aren't helpful. They're not formative. They don't propel us in a trajectory. I'm not saying that at all. Because some of you, and myself included, have had very powerful experiences with the Lord. But they are not everything. There must be more to that. We've seen that with Judas. We've seen that with countless people in the Bible. And so he closes with this evil generation and he kind of gives them like this, whoa, like that, would, that should haunt you if you're listening, right? Like even if you're a Pharisee or not. And, and I just, I think about that Gideon, the story of Gideon and how like you read that and you're like, well, that's frustrating. Now, why did Gideon get this tangible, like he almost like boxed God in. He's like, you better show up in this way with this damp, you know, rug thing on the, you know, and you're like, they're so specific and it doesn't seem fair. But what you don't realize is if you read before that, before the story of Gideon, and all the enemies come together, and God speaks to Gideon, what happens? Gideon basically removes the idolatry in, that, in, in, in all of his people. He tears down the kind of um, religious poles. They were following other gods and things like that. I'm oversimplifying. But he tears all that down. He's had enough of it. He's had enough of the distractions, enough of the world, enough of the sin and the brokenness. And he tears all that down. He creates an environment for God to show up. And then a few verses later, what does he do? God shows up. Is it possible that even if God revealed himself to you, you'd be so distracted, you'd be so concerned with other things that you wouldn't even see him? I think about this in my own personal life. Like if I'm, if I'm trying to really just sit in the presence of the Lord, I need at least 15 minutes of silence. Because my brain just, you know, it doesn't stop. You can probably tell I'm up here just talking, right? <laughs> it doesn't stop. 15 minutes. Now, do I get to do that every day? No. Wish I could. I try to. But if I don't spend more than two minutes in silence for the next six months, should I really be mad that, that I know I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't consecrate any time in my life to hear from God, to, to experience oneness with him, union, silence? And, and I'm not saying that disciplines themselves are what saves you, but those means of grace for, for being with God. So I would just say, if, you, if you're frustrated, if you feel like God is not making himself real to you, just start spending 15 minutes of silence first. Because you're complaining about something that you're not even creating a space for God to move. And that's what I love about Gideon. Gideon experiences this because he had enough of the cultural pressure and, and the, the, the kind of the, the constriction, and he just removed it all. And there's this freedom in that. He destroys the idols, and he actually makes an altar. He sacrifices the Lord. He, he gives over. And I think about, like, what is, what is tithe? What is uh, Sabbath? Sabbath is us consecrating time, margin, opportunity, resources for God to move. It is saying, I trust you. And even if you don't move, like even if you do nothing on my Sabbath, I just, I just worship, I pray, I don't get any work done, I don't do any errands, whatever, right? Like it was still good. And God will still use the other six days of my week. What is giving generously? What is tithing? It's giving away a portion of your income knowing, that you get, well, it's God's income, but giving it away knowing that I trust that God will use the 80, the 90, whatever percent of, my, of the income he's given me and I'll be okay. Like, that is, what is giving our time? It's saying, I can give some of my 24 hours that everybody has every day, and I can give that away, and I know God will still utilize the time that I have. And even if I don't feel like I utilize it, it's still, it's a consecration for God to move in our lives. And I, I just, I love that story because um, I want to close with this, that that's so in tandem with that in the modern day. I don't know if you have uh, heard of Billy Graham. He... <laughs> He has preached to 300 million people. So essentially, I mean, if he was alive today, everyone in America would have been preached to by Billy Graham, which is crazy to think about. Billy Graham has 
uh, this story, and it's a really long story. I'm going to try to oversimplify it because I'm going over time. But um, he has this story of this guy by the name of Charles Templeton. They became friends. And you can read this online. I can, I'll send the article in the email this week because it's a really long story, but I'm going to simplify it. The, both of them were great evangelists, just amazing. Billy Graham, like I wasn't alive for Billy Graham, but I mean for like his, his height in the 49 or 79, 1979, I think was his high like L.A. revival. Everybody comes to Jesus, right? Um, he was a profound speaker. When he, when he spoke, it sounded like just thunder. You're like, okay, whatever you say. Like that, he was just good. His buddy Charles was also very good. They were, became friends. And Charles started to move on this trajectory of more of a progressive theology. He started reading some people that are a little bit more progressive. And what happens is Charles starts to question the, the inerrancy, meaning like the without error of the Bible in, in terms of God and, and all that. I'm oversimplifying again, but... And, and they start kind of arguing, and Charles starts to ream out Billy, saying, like, your theology's 40 years old. You're, like, you're not going to reach people. Like, you need to update it. You need to study all that kind of stuff, right? And, and, and so this, all of a sudden, Charles Templeton starts grilling him with all these questions about creation and about the, the origins of Jonah and all this type of stuff, right, that we can all read online. And, and he gets to the point where Billy's, like, overwhelmed. He is like, oh, my gosh. Like, do I believe in any of this? Which maybe you've had that moment, Right? Like I said, you've read one Nietzsche book, and you're like, I don't know. And, and you're at that spot. And so Billy Graham's at this camp. He's about to speak in Forest Home. It's his big camp. This is like a few weeks or months before his massive revival in L.A., where he just, after that, he's just, it, the rest is history. He speaks to this conference. The day before, he is like having an existential faith crisis. He is like, I don't know if this is real. My buddy in his theology is like, it's picking holes. I, I don't know the answers. And he goes out into the woods the night before to pray. And he said, this is like a famous, there's a tree stump that, in Forest Home that he set his Bible on. And he was praying and, and reading the scriptures. And he was praying and he basically says, like, Lord, I have a lot of doubts. And I have a lot, I just have things that I don't have the answers to. Like, I don't have a smooth answer. My heart doesn't have the answer. Um, but I am gonna, I am gonna preach your word. Like I believe it's truth. Even when, I believe in my unbelief, which is a powerful statement. And, and he, and he says in, in his story when he gets interviewed, he says in that moment, like the spirit of the Lord just, I felt like just rested on me in such a powerful way. He goes out and he preaches fire the next day, and then you know we know the story, right? Millions come to Christ over the next few years. Charles Templeton eventually becomes an atheist. He moves to Canada, and he, as he's dying, he has an interview with Lee Strobel. If you've ever heard of Lee Strobel. Uh, he's a great like Christian guy. Wrote Case for Christ. He was an atheist, and then he found proof of Christ. Anyways, um, he interviews him towards the end, and, and they start talking about Jesus with Charles Templeton. And he says this phrase at the end. He's like he's tear-eyed, and he's talking about how he he misses Jesus. This atheist agnostic. Um, he probably would be more agnostic. Misses Jesus. And I I think about the two trajectories of both of those guys. Right, both great preachers. Charles Templeton was probably even better in some ways than Billy Graham in terms of captivating an audience. And one completely goes off, and the other one stays true. But both of them had their doubts. And so if you're doubting today, if you're wrestling, if you're struggling, if you're trying to put God in a sign box, right, like I want to see from you, I just want you to know that you're not alone and that Jesus knows what you're dealing with, right? He became human. He knows temptation. He knows suffering. And he prayed it out, right? We read that. So... um, I just I want to pray for you. I want to pray for your hearts that are struggling. And I want you to know that, uh, like anything, I think we have to keep saying it. That this place is not a place of the healed. It is of the sick. 
And that uh, doubt, I think, is sickness in some ways. And so we all have it. And if you're here, I want you to know that we love you. And we will not expect you to have it all together. And if you ever want to talk about it, like, we are here for you. Can I pray for you? Lord, I just, I thank you for just this, this story of the Bible and, and the stories like Gideon, who maybe we even forget about. And, and it's just overwhelming sometimes to think about how you've revealed yourself to certain people and, and other people not as much, and it's frustrating. And some of us have been dealing with that tension. Some of us are on that, that spot right now. Lord, I don't have an answer. I'm just a human. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would minister to those hearts today. Father, I don't know what they need. You do. But Lord, I just pray that your spirit would overwhelm them with a sense of your peace, your comfort. Lord, I pray for the people in our lives who we know that that is where they're at, and we are feeling hopeless and helpless in their relationship with them, that we feel like, I just don't know how to help them. I, I don't feel like I have the right answers. I can't say the right things. And even if I do think I say the right things, they still are, they don't care. It doesn't have any weight. But I pray for those people. I pray for the people in our lives that we have been having decades of conversations with, that we feel like we're at a wall. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would break through those walls. I pray that your spirit would encourage us Lord, to live a life, not of blind faith, Lord, but of true faith, holding open hands, trusting that you are in control and that you are a good father, that you would not give us a stone, but you would give us a loaf, Lord. And I pray that our hearts would consecrate time, energy, resources, Lord, in our lives to, to want to consecrate those, to experience you, to be in union with you, Lord, and that we would not forget the devil is out there trying to twist and pervert things in our lives against you. So Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for your heart in being firm about the reality of our hearts and the state of them. Lord, and I pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.